Hello, and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Dr. Mona Patel-Guerra of Children's Hospital Los Angeles. One of the scariest things about receiving a diagnosis of Down syndrome is that laundry list of possible diagnosis that is accompanied. And today we're going to talk about that. We're going to go down the list, what we need to know, what we need to ask, and we're going to bring some insight and information and hopefully a little ease. Please welcome Dr. Guerra. Good afternoon. How are you? Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm doing okay. Good to see you guys. We're really happy that you could be here with us today because we've been looking forward to it. I'm very excited as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Mona Patel-Guerra. I'm a practicing pediatrician and I'm a wife and a mother of two beautiful children. And um, I'm so honored to be here to be able to talk to both of you today. And I believe when I first met the both of you was when my son Sajel was in class in first grade with Liam. And it was just such an extraordinary experience. I can say professionally and personally for me. And as a practicing pediatrician, I do care for many children with special health care needs. But my world sort of came together when my son was in class with Liam, who has Down syndrome. And he came home one day and he actually said, Mama, Liam's mom came to class and talked to us about something called Down syndrome and that um, Liam is going to be in our class and that we're going to be friends and we're going to learn all about everything. So I said, okay, this is great. What was really neat for me, the first instance was when Sajel came home and said, guess what, mom, I went to APE today. And when I heard that, I sort of stopped in my tracks because that's a word I use at work, right? When I talk about APE, adaptive PE, you know, speech therapy and occupational therapy and all of these things are sort of my bread and butter world that I think about when I'm at work. But at the time to hear my son in first grade say, I went to APE with my classmate, I said, well, what was that? What is that? What was that like? And he said, mommy, it's called adaptive PE. I was able to go with Liam. Um, and I said, okay, what does adaptive PE mean? How is it different than the PE that you do? And he said, well, we work on different kinds of skills that, you know, to help Liam with his balance. Um, we played with a really big ball and we got to bounce the ball back and forth. And he was also able to walk with Liam to some of his other therapies. And I just thought it was brilliant. When I talk about inclusion and in, in, in mainstreaming when our children with special health care needs and specifically even Down syndrome, I'm a big advocate to having our children in all of the mainstream classes because I see a bi-directional educational value there, um, not only for our children with intellectual disabilities, but also the learning that all children can gain into and, and gain in perspective, patience, just kindness in, in humility, those are lessons that as a parent, I feel like are very tough to teach. But something that you, you know, embody in friendship, I think is wonderful. I talk to Sajel all the time about Liam, and, and, and he always brings up how it was fun because we would sit at the table with Liam, and we would have lunch together, and we would play ball with all of us together. And I've been meaning to look up this world called disinclusion because I don't know if that's a real word or not, but in first grade, Sajel kept saying this word named disinclusion and he would tell people, no disinclusion, no disinclusion. 
And I asked him one day, what does that mean to you? And he says, well, no, you can't just exclude people if they're different or if we all don't know how to play different games. Because he said, I've learned from my friend Liam, maybe he doesn't know how to play some games, but he's like, mama, I don't either. And it doesn't matter. And we're all going to learn together. And it's fun. And I feel like as a mom, I learned so much <laughs> through that. Um, as an advocate and a pediatrician, it's an example that I bring up when I talk to many of my patients that I care for with Down syndrome, because it, it, there's so much value that you can have when it comes to mainstreaming a child. Um, specifically for our children with intellectual disabilities, depending on the type of intellectual disability, you know, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, in different school systems, it depends on the type of environment that you're in, the type of, you know, the, how many um, teachers are in those school settings. And I constantly worry about if you have a big wide ranging scale of children that are put into a classroom, I worry about my, my patients that have higher abilities and whether there's concentration and focus from teachers on, on that subset. And that's why that's one of the things that I very much write many IEPs, you know, individual education plans. I always try to even attend IEPs on behalf of my patients to talk about this because all of these approaches have to be individualized to the patient. I am not a believer in sort of cookie cutter plans that are made oftentimes, unfortunately, for our children with special health care needs. So it's very important to look at the specific skill sets, look at the specific type of therapies and what can really benefit that child and their family. I love hearing that story. We don't, because, you know, uh, we don't get to hear all the stories from because Liam doesn't come home and tell us the stories, which we experienced with Sophia as well. But so we don't get to hear all of those stories. And I had even forgotten that I had come into class and talked about Down syndrome. And I love hearing Sage will talk about disinclusion because whether it's a, a word, it's a word now. We send our kids to school and we hope for the best. But honestly, the first day of school for us is so different than neurotypical parents. We have different worries, you know, and so just to think that Liam had such an advocate, you know, Sagel stepping up and just his insight. I mean, Sagel's a very special person anyway. I've always thought that. But just his insights about not every kid knowing the rules of the game and having a friend who is neurotypical on Liam's side, who can be his voice, it's really important. And I think that that translates, it does translate into the future really of society. And it's wonderful to think about because we talk about a very important part of Liam being in a typical classroom with his peers is that he's modeling some neurotypical children and their behavior, but it's a two-way street. And it, it's nice to hear that there's modeling on both sides. Well, because we fight and it's always, it always when you go into an IEP, because you talked about the IEP and Sajel wrote a really lovely letter one year for Liam's IEP. And I think this year when we have our virtual IEP, maybe I'll tap you again to see if you can come to our IEP because we're always fighting and I parents fight so hard. And our question is always why do we have to fight so hard when the benefits for everyone are there? And I feel like I'm fighting for this right, like this privilege, almost begging to have 
my child present as and and it sets this tone of he's less than other people he has less to offer but that's not what it is and you forget that as a parent but that is definitely the tone sometimes when you sit in on an IEP because you're there you the reality of an IEP is to make a plan for your child and what it really comes down to most of the time in every experience, even from any parent that I've talked to with IEPs, and I talk to a lot of parents, is that you go in there, you decide what you're going to fight for, you have to let some of your interests go. And that's heartbreaking as a parent to go, well, I got this, but I didn't get, you know, the speech he needed. Because all of these things have such importance and impact. And it doesn't feel like this is our child, let's support him. It feels like you're going there, (laughs) like Oliver, (laughs) Saying, like it's charity and yeah. and Liam has something to give all children have something to give and their value there's there's value there there's they they're valuable to the classroom like every life is valuable but it doesn't mm-hmm. that's not the tone that right. the school system really puts forth I completely agree with you I think what you guys are talking about really at the crux of it is advocating right as parents that's what you do is you advocate and unfortunately even when it comes to the IEP process it's that cookie cutter mentality at a lot of times that you have to go in and beg for that individual sort of plan that adapts for your your child. That's the reason why I think Sajel that year that we talked about when he came home and I told him that you know Liam was going to have this IEP, Sajel was really frustrated and he said, "Well, what 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 can I say about it and what about my feelings about this?" And I was taken aback by that because exactly to your point the value that Liam brings for other children is often never even considered when we think about IEPs. And even Sajel, I don't I think it was 2019, so a couple of years ago, he just wrote a letter because I said, sit down and write your feelings and why this is important that Liam should be in your class or be in class with other kids. And there's that mentality that I think is a lot of times forgotten. And that's one thing from, I think, that friend, that special friendship that was developed that even Sajel, to this day, I talk to him about Liam, and he still talks about that letter, still talks about his friendship, how valued, how important it is, and how much he's learned from your son. And those are lessons that I don't think I could ever teach him. It's something beautiful that your son taught my son. And that has to be brought up in IEPs and that has to be recognized with people who make those decisions. And that's the exact voice that I bring when I bring to IEPs is, again, that value of just humility and kindness and what we learn from each other, that respect. It's more a lot of times than any of the therapies that we do. You know, early intervention is what we talk about, early recognition, therapy, therapy, therapy constantly. But there's also the value of therapy of just friendship and your peers, and that collegiality and playing together and, and all of that. I remember, you know, you told me that Sajel between, I think, first and second grade, Lori, you told me that Liam asked for Sajel over the summer. That was beautiful, you know, and I wish we did more playdates and, and would be completely open to doing that. But there's so much there that's learned and valued and so important. You know, at the end of the day, I, I always feel like as a pediatrician mom, if I can raise my children just to be kind human beings, I've done my job, period. And, and those are the lessons that don't come from school books, don't come from those things. They come from just basic human experience. 
And that's such an important value that your son brought to my son at that early age. And I can't thank you enough for that personally. I, I think that it's wonderful that Sejal got frustrated or was, was mad that Liam had to fight to be in a classroom because I do not believe that people know and understand that that is the situation. You know, we, we are fighting to have our kids get educated. And, and I can say that people don't know and understand because whenever I tell people, like even when I say, yeah, every year I hire a lawyer to sit in my IEP, would I like to do something else with that money? Yes. Can I? No, I have to. Because the one time we showed up without a lawyer, they tried to strip away our rights and just tell us they were going to take them off curriculum. Just tell us what they were going to do. No discussion. It was right. unlaw. It was actually unlawful the way they did it. But not being lawyers, we could only say no. We don't agree to that. But we couldn't. We could have at that point, if we were lawyers, remind them what they were doing was unlawful. But we didn't know. And so you know that happens to parents all the time. That's the patients I care for. Many of my patients can't afford lawyers. So the only things that I can do as their pediatrician is I can write letters. I can go in and talk about, you know, what the IDEA Act and what all of the different rules and regulations are and teach about, you know, what those days and limits are. If you don't agree with your IEP, don't sign it. And there's different things that, you know, we try to hold together and advocate for. But it's so important because you bring that up. Many patients that I serve and families I care for don't know that, don't understand this in the system, don't appreciate what can happen and often will sign these things because again, it's, there's just so many rules and regulations around this that unfortunately there's not always folks there to advocate on behalf of our children. Do you have any recommendations for those parents? Because it is, it is true, like people don't know. What I always recommend actually is to go to our regional centers. Um, who are really wonderful at times with um, educating and being able to do that. There are also many different pro bono legal experts in the community, and those are experts that we oftentimes align with. I think educating as much as, as, much as possible. So with my families, I always wrap in um, our advocacy teams and social, te social work teams just to be able to engage, sit down and talk about, okay, what is this process? What does it mean? What are your rights? What are the different levels of support we can give? And how do you align with your healthcare providers and your community together to help? And then when it really comes to push and shove, then that's when we say, okay, do we need to get some of our legal experts that we happen to work with? You know, there's the neighborhood councils and all of them that will get involved that are the ones that really know the rules and the regulations and that can go in and help. You just, you would hope it wouldn't have to go to that, but unfortunately it does go to that, you know, many times. But that's what I recommend is just educating as much as possible of what the process is. Because like I said, many families just don't know. So we will sit down and talk about, okay, these are your rights. This is what the normal process looks like. You're allowed to have this type of review. You have to sit down and read everything and go from there. And I think, again, every case is individual. Where I work, fortunately, we do have an advocacy team that can kind of jump in and help many of our families sort of translate this information. Is there a place where parents, because we have listeners from all over, is there a place where parents can go to see some of those resources? Maybe online? Yeah, online you can, you know, you can Google pretty much a lot of different things, but the trusted resources I would do is looking at um, the regional centers. 
they have many, many different links there um, within that area. And um, Down syndrome specifically is one of the diagnoses that's covered. And that's who we tend to lean on depending on, you know, which zip code and which regional center is available. I would say go there first. Again, it depends on the age of your child. And then see if you can be matched with a case manager with you that can help start kind of supporting what's going on. And then I always say align with your pediatrician. Hopefully the pediatrician that's been with you, whether it's a prenatal visit to understand what this diagnosis may be and all of the things that we have to work together um, on raising your child with your family with the best opportunity and potential in life and then going and having these discussions because that's what you know your pediatricians are going to be trained in doing this work and they'll be able to be armed with the resources um, to help direct you. Well regional center would be California and I know most other states have have some something that they could go to. But in the end I would say again aligning with your pediatricians or your healthcare provider, they'll be able to give you direction, especially when it comes to, you know, our children with developmental disabilities. What is your personal experience with children, with your patients with Down syndrome? Oh, my personal experience is I have so many children that I care for that I have been working in this field since, gosh, started training 2003. So that ages me what 17, 18 years I've been doing this. So I've had the honor of seeing children prenatal visit who are now 15, 16 years old. I have new babies that I have in my practice. And I use the health supervision kind of guidelines with all of my patients and families. So the American Academy of Pediatrics put together this health supervision guidelines. You can actually find that online um, and read through it. Some of it is some technical language about all of the medical things that we look for, but it, it's really great because it breaks down at every single age set what you should be asking your pediatrician and what the pediatrician should be looking for. And even in a table format, all of the stuff that we check. So that's something starting with my prenatal visit, I go through with the families and say, this is my job to make sure I'm checking all of these things for your child. But gosh, my children with Down syndrome, I always tell families from the beginning, there's so much variability of what you see. So as you started out saying, you know, we're blessed, Liam doesn't have a lot of, you know, the heart defects or the GI issues. It's such a spectrum when it comes to Down syndrome. Um, I've had children that have had very severe cardiac conditions, very severe GI conditions, hearing loss. I've had some children that really have not had a lot, right? I have some that are in high school right now that are doing great. I had one last week who's 17 year old and was upset with me because I told him we have to watch his diet. Um, and he was just kind of slammed the door and says that he's mad that I always talk to him about his eating and tell him that he has to drink water, but he likes drinking his chocolate milk. So it's a, it's a large spectrum that I see of different children with, you know, Down syndrome. But at the end of the day, one thing I always say is your child and the impact and the longevity is based on the family support that that child has. Early intervention with therapies, the love, the foundation that you have as a family for your child, that's going to add to the longevity that we see with our children and adults with Down syndrome by far. Um, and it's because of those medical things are just so disparate. You, you know, it could be very, very rare, or you can have a child that has multiple different things. And then that would be our jobs, you know, as the medical professionals to take care of those things that are, you know, the GI illnesses, or, you know, if we need hearing aids, we need glasses, we need different things. But overall, how a child does with Down syndrome, it's that family unit and it's the support and the love. 
So that's from the prenatal visit. I tell my families all the time, I'm going to help you fix and help with the medical stuff, but we've got to get the social supports in place. We have to make sure that we do this together. We have to make sure that that child's being raised in the most loving environment possible. We have to make sure we engage and work together and collaborate to advocate for your child, whether it's school, whether it's being in the sport, whether it's whatever it is, we're going to work together. Um, I had one patient that I was so proud she wanted to be a cheerleader in um, high school and we wrote a letter and she was able to make it on the cheerleading team. So I have that picture um, of her there in her uniform and she's been my patient since she was five years old. So my experience has been wonderful. I have had some children that have been quite sick that have unfortunately passed. I've had far more that have graduated are now, um, I have one that's working at Goodwill. I have many that have transitioned into just wonderful adult lives that I've just been so thankful to be involved in their lives and help care for them. Well, that basic recommendation seems like such a typical thing. You would, you would recommend that for any child, you know? Yep, and that's the promise I make with every child I care for, whether, you know, they have Down syndrome or they have, you know, anything else. It's the basic promise that we collaborate and work together and advocate for that child's life no matter what. So we can put a link to the help supervision guidelines in our notes. That would be fantastic. We'll make sure that we do that so parents can look. And I think that's part of it because you get a diagnosis which is unknown or based in stereotypes and information that's outdated, you know. I don't know if there's a way to not, if you don't have information, to not feel fear because the information that you do have is usually very negative and very limited. If parents have information, then they can go forward on their own path. That's the most important thing. It's one of those documents that I always give a photocopy and I ask my parents to just keep it with them. And on my annual visits or, you know, early on monthly to annual visits, we go through the checklist together. There's a beautiful table and it actually says when you should check these labs that you have to check when you're entering sports, you think about, you know, some instability you can see in the spine when they're around three to five year olds, are they having any trouble breathing because you might think about some sleep apnea. So all of these different things, it's age specific guidelines that was put together and it's wonderful. And I think it's wonderful for all parents to just read through that. But then again, arm that information with your pediatrician and hold each other accountable. So there are a few different things that you mentioned. You mentioned GI, you mentioned the heart, the ears, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, leukemia was something in children with Down syndrome that was one of the things that... Was a higher chance. Was a higher chance. Higher chance. So there's something called transient myeloproliferative disorder, which basically means there's a propensity for the white blood cells to kind of be ramped up. So you'll have higher levels when children are young, when they have Down syndrome. And it's something that, again, we check the blood at certain intervals, according to those guidelines. And then there's about a 1% risk of leukemia later in life. You know, in my years, I've cared for children with Down syndrome. I fortunately, knock on one, haven't had my children diagnosed with that yet. But it, again, that's why in your annual visits, it's something that we screen for. The same as I would screen, honestly, for other children as well. So the, the risk of leukemia is about 1%. And that would be probably the most severe consequence medically that we think about. The more common things that we see, as you mentioned, hearing loss, um, hearing, ear infections repeatedly, um, vision, is that something very, very important that we check annually? 
the sleep issues because of the way, you know, our children with Down syndrome, the way the nose and the mouth and the bridge kind of connects together. That's something that we look at as well. And then when children are born early on, that's when we're pretty rigorous about looking at sort of the heart and the GI system, because those can usually present early on. One more thing, the thyroid is something that we watch for because congenital hypothyroid is common. Um, and then it's something that we watch over time. The biggest other thing that we watch for children with Down syndrome tend to have something called hypotonia, which means that it's not that they're weak, but the tone of their body is more relaxed. So sometimes you might see difficulty with eating um, and, and what kind of surmises from there. So again, it's something that you just monitor and watch. And some children may have it you know, different levels of the hyper, the tone or different levels of hearing impediment or vision. Some may not have any. These are all kind of risks of all of these things. And that's why we collaborate with parents and, and check constantly. When you talked about leukemia, you said that it is more prevalent at a young age. It's not prevalent. It's, it's a transient high blood cell that happens, not leukemia. So there's this transient process that you might see the blood cells go high and people might think, oh no, this is leukemia, but it's not. Leukemia, we usually see later on. And that's why we have these annual, when we do our physicals, we tend to check the blood um, for thyroid and for you know risks of leukemia. The other things that you would check for risk for leukemia for any child would be if a child starts to have bleeding or easy bruising, starts to become pale having night sweats or fevers, a lot of weight loss. Those are general symptoms we look for leukemia at any age group. So that tied in with the annual blood test that we check would be what we do when we're thinking about leukemia. You see, this is my question. Like I remember, like honestly, until you just said that to me right now, 1%, there's been this fear in the back of my head since Liam was born. Because one of the things that were presented to me was he has a higher risk for leukemia and cancers. I guess the hard part for me as a clinician, like if I put on my clinician doctor hat, 1% isn't that high, you know? And the way I frame it with my families is, okay, you have 100 kids, 99% of the times you're not going to have any problem. It's it's a 1% issue, right? Which when you extrapolate that out, sure. But it's not something that I ever would say to a family that I would hold and worry about constantly and, and be trapped by that diagnosis. Let's talk about that because there are families that receive that diagnosis and I can only imagine what that diagnosis is because it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard road to travel to remission and it's a lot. So can we talk a little bit? Absolutely. So it's leukemia, lymphoma, any of the cancers. If I think about the, you know, the childhood cancers that we see being diagnosed with leukemia, if you were to be diagnosed with any type of cancer, unfortunately, it's one of those that we actually have pretty good protocols in, in going into remission. And when it comes to childhood cancers, leukemia, we're now about 93 to 94% getting into remission with our children. Now the therapeutics are pretty tough, you know, when you think about chemotherapy and whatnot, but our children do quite well. So gone is the day that when we think about leukemia, we think of it as, you know, this sentence that it's going to be like other types of cancers that we have in our society. So when I think about our children with Down syndrome and the 1% risk being leukemia, also in the back of my head, I think, well, we have pretty good treatments nowadays for that. And, you know, we always hope that our children don't, you know, have this type of disease diagnosed, but if they were going to, it's one of the ones that it's okay to have because the treatments are pretty good. What do you tell your patients 
when you have to deliver that diagnosis? Uh, It's one of the tougher ones. It's hard because the children I care for, I care for children that have transplants. I have children that have cancer. I have children that are dialysis dependent. So the whole spectrum, right? So for me as a pediatrician, any diagnosis I give is always tough to sit down with a family, but I'm honest and I tell patients, you have this new diagnosis. I don't know what the treatment is going to be like because I'm not the specialist who's going to be necessarily giving the treatment, but gosh, I'm going to work with you and I'm going to be there the entire time along with your specialist to see how we can have the best outcome from your child. And we're going to be there every step of the way together. Our goal is to make sure that that child's outcome is the best that it can potentially be. And then I usually just stay quiet and I let that diagnosis sink in with families and just support as much as I can. But I'm honest because I don't know what the road's going to look like, you know, and I'm speaking this way as a clinician who's had patients pass unexpectedly through treatment. And I've had patients who have done incredibly well, some that I could have never predicted. And if there's any physician who sits there and says they can predict the future, they are lying. I think you have to be honest about that. And I realized long ago, my job is to help a family and a child have the best outcome in life as possible, whether it's gonna be a full life ahead without illness or whether it's gonna have an unfortunate illness and how can I make that end of life process as tenable, non-painful, supportive as possible. And, and that's the reality. Do you have any advice for parents? My advice for parents is to, as much as possible, be there to support your child, be transparent and be honest, depending on the age of that child. Um, if a child is older, try to make some of those decisions together be honest and explain. Every every child that I've had that's, I would say, eight and older wants to know what's going on with their body. They want the truth. They want to be able to be there and help make decisions. And as hard it is as a parent to be involved and discuss these things, it's very, very important. I think part of it is also for parents to work with your healthcare professionals. The more you can collaborate, the better it will be. But I think that's the best advice I can give because it is a world that we all hope to never diagnose these things for any child, right? Any person. But unfortunately, sometimes that does happen. But it's being transparent, being honest, being direct, having questions ready, always, always, never feeling bad that you're bugging anybody with your questions. And it can be whatever. You might even think this is a stupid question. I can, I tell my patients all the time, I have stupid questions constantly constantly and I'm a doctor and I'm a mother and I ask my own pediatrician these things that I should know but I also know that when it's my son or daughter that doctor part goes away and I'm a mom and that's okay so I always say when you have a diagnosis you have anything make a list and ask anything you need and demand it and advocate for your child always are there any parent supports that you can recommend? Because I know like when you have this diagnosis and it's taxing on, on a parent, um, parents I talk to who have more challenging diagnoses, they, I, I just, uh, I see it wear on them. And I honestly, as a friend, feel helpless. You know, I, I can listen, but is there any resource to offer up? 
I think those resources are going to depend on the diagnosis. Um, whenever there's a new diagnosis of anything, I always recommend parent support groups because honestly, I can help support from that pediatrician end and healthcare provider end, but the comfort you're going to have from another family who has a child with the same diagnosis is the most incredible support that you can get, quite frankly. So that's one of the first things that I try to do is link my families with other families. Always reach out to the other families and see if that's okay. And I can tell you 100% of the time, they all say, yes, please have them reach out because I was there and I get it. And I can talk to them and I can say, yes, this is scary. And this part was scary, but you know what? Now my child's doing this or, hey, we made a decision this way and this actually worked. And we went against the healthcare team this way. It's that type of friendship and bond that you gain because you're going through this sort of shared experience. Um, that's really important to be able to lean on each other. So yes, um, within any type of healthcare community and treatments, you should always ask for what other parent support group resources there are. Um, I know online, there's many different type of groups and cohorts. Um, I think those can be very impactful, especially right now during the pandemic, just to be able to lean. Sometimes I worry that there could be also fostering misinformation and misguidance in time. So also it's important, I think, to always go back to your healthcare provider and talk about this stuff. I've had patients come back to me and say, hey, I learned this in my Facebook group. Is this true or not true? And I'll say, oh, you know what? I didn't even know that. Let me research that for you. Or I'll say, you know what? Yeah, actually that is true. So always kind of share that together with your healthcare team. I think all of that information is good and that support is very important. Thank you. We were just, I just looked at, I was like, you're so, you're amazing. You're such a gift. I can only imagine the gift you, I mean, we have a great pediatrician and I'm looking at you going, you're, you're amazing. I, I hope that every parent has that kind of support. And if they don't, then they seek it. Cause I, you know, a lot of times it comes down to money, right? Do we have health care? Do we, do we have um, the ability to seek out those good doctors or those good supports? And that's why it's the most important thing as a parent is to arm yourself as much as possible with that knowledge, right? And if you feel like your healthcare provider that you've been given or you've chosen is not collaborating with you, not listening, then you need to find another one. It's, it's the most important thing to be able to work with your healthcare team. I think that's hard for parents though. And I think that's one of the things just like education that we, we go into it whether we have another child who's neurotypical or not, we have a certain relationship, there's an expectation there, there's things that you wouldn't fathom, you know, having Sophia, I wouldn't fathom that I would have to sit and fight for her to be in a classroom or have to always prove who she is. And, you know, she was able to fail so much, she was able to struggle, she was able to do all of those things that if Liam had been my first child, it, it's it's a totally different experience and you, you just don't expect it, right? I, I often refer to, because Sophia's journey was, she did have challenges. I can look back and say, well, they're both experiencing the same thing. Why was she allowed? Why, why did you never look at me and say, we're going to take her out of the class? You know, we're her failure take a- built her for success. That was supposed yeah. to be a launching pad to growth. I feel like sometimes when we look at our system of children set up for children with developmental disabilities, there's a different set of a microscope or a lens placed on those children. It's sort of like you're waiting for them to fail. 
you're waiting for them to say, oh, you know what? Nope, they can't be in the classroom because they're disruptive. Let's pull them out because it's easier, right? It's easier. And, and that's the part that's really hard and really challenging. And you're completely right. You know, there are school systems that right now that will let children fail. I had, I found out I had a fifth grade child in my office two weeks ago who didn't know how to read. Fifth grade. And I'm sitting there thinking, how did you get passed to multiple other grades? I sat there with the mom and said, did your teacher say anything to you? How did your child advance in these grades if they didn't know how to read? That was really tough for me to understand for that child how that even happened. But then I also, on the flip side, think about my other children with developmental disabilities. Those are the children I'm constantly fighting, the schools, just as you are. And I see that even in my practice constantly. Well, with the with the reading, I, we were very aware early on because as early as kindergarten, they were saying, pull them off curriculum. And I was like, come on, it's colors. <laughs> come on. Um, but but I think that's the thing is that the, the road is usually pull them off curriculum. It happens. You think you don't have a voice. You don't know that it's unlawful the way they just do it. There's so many things that have to go into pulling a child off a curriculum. Right. But I use the word bully. They, they really, they bully you to thinking that that's, it's not a choice and you don't participate in it. So then your child is off curriculum. And I, I realize there are a lot of children off curriculum. And it may be good for some and it children. May be good I, for I'm some assuming children. there's going to be good for right? kids, for some but, kids. But uh, the light that shines so brightly for us is you're not accountable to our child right now. If we pull them off curriculum where is that accountability? How far will it fall? And Liam reads. Liam can read. He can spell. He can do math. They, we had to find out from someone else to ask for a calculator. And another parent told us about a calculator. And he's right there in the class participating, you know, because he has the calculator, maybe even better than some of the students who are strug- who are struggling and could use a calculator. Yeah, once right? we got past the adding of just single digits, and then you could break that down into into multiple digits, when it got to that being uh, just an exponent of another part of math, instead of having him take all the time to do that, you could use the calculator to do that, and then then he's allowed to go on to the next step and figure out fractions or you know word all problems, of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what you were speaking on was if you're doctor isn't supporting you the way that you need to find another one. And I think the challenge is for parents that that's a, that's a frightening thing. And I'll be honest with all the other things that are going on and all the other ways that you're being challenged and having to rise above and everything in a day, it's hard to question your doctor. A a, a better way to think of it is make your doctor listen to you. (laughs) I mean, it's so important though. I mean, as a physician, yes, I trained to do this work, but it is my honor, my privilege, and I'm humbled to be part of a child's life and a family's life. That period is how we think about our jobs as pediatricians. You know, I'm an advocate first, a pediatrician. I mean, that's really tied and tied together. That's what my job is. So when I say the words, you know, make sure you're, you have the right physician or the physician that you have, make sure they hear you, that they really hear you and that you're sitting there and you're able to advocate. 
and I, and I do realize not everyone is able to change their physician, but I think it's very, very important that you bring up all issues and you make them listen. When you're on this path, like you forget, you don't think to question the school because you're like, well, obviously they're doing the right thing. I just had so many conversations last week with a mom who was just like, well, they said, let's do this and this. And I just thought they were going to do the best thing for my child. So they didn't question anything. And now they're further down the road. And it's a lot of work for them. They have to undo a lot of things. What I'm trying to say is that that to empower parents, to you have a voice, you know, do you tell every parent, like, follow that gut. And if it's not right, you can go somewhere else. It doesn't, when we were looking for an OT or a, right, was it OT or PT when Liam was very tiny? I mean, we had people come in, we had somebody come into our house and use the R word. I mean, and, and I just every, and I felt horrible every time I had to say, oh God, I'm so sorry but I'm going to ask for a nut. This one just doesn't work. And every time I felt like, am I rocking the boat? Am I being difficult? But, you know, then you get the right fit and you're like, this is what it's supposed to be because people can only do the job where they come from. And if you're starting to see a perspective of your child that they're seeing the way they're seeing your child doesn't fit the way with, with the way that you see your child, then you definitely need to find that marriage of someone who does because you're not going to get the support that you need for your child to reach the potential that you know that they have. Absolutely. And you know your child better than anybody out there. That is the number one thing, even when we're talking and teaching our pediatric residents just because you're a physician, because you have that MD behind your name, does not ever mean you know more than others. If a mom or a dad or a caregiver comes and has this concern, has a pit, um, doctor, I think you're forgetting, you better stop in your tracks and listen. And I always say that's the biggest thing I worry about is when a patient's you know, family tells me I have something wrong, I'm not listening, or I'm missing something, that's what makes me stop right now, right then and start over. Because I recognize, nope, that family knows them way better than I do, I, that I ever could. Thank you. So I want to move on to some of the other possible medical challenges. And I thank you about the, the, the leuke leukemia and all of that. It's just, it's such a, I wanted to really talk about it because I think if we don't talk, the change doesn't happen, right? And people can benefit from just even those, a, a calming word or some advice or just knowing this conversation with you today, the 1%, I mean, I've carried that with me. And Liam has an appointment next week for his annual. And they said they were going to take blood work. And I have to admit that in my gut, I just, I worry so much. And because it was presented to me so much bigger than that, right? You had mentioned uh, GI and heart. They happen, and, and I apologize if I get it wrong because I'm not a doctor, um, but do they occur more when a child is premature? Yes, they can occur more. And many different conditions can occur more when a child is born prematurely because that can actually cause a premature birth um, depending on how severe any type of um, GI type of issue there is or any kind of cardiac lesion or whatnot. So those are typically found pretty early. What we do is we, of course, listen for murmurs. Um, we check, you know, the baby's skin, if they have any blue skin. There's some congenital heart defects that are more common in children with Down syndrome, and those present pretty early. So those are the things that we check when babies are born. We check their oxygen levels. We check how they're breathing. Um, we usually do an echocardiogram, which is basically an ultrasound of the heart to see what that, you know, if we can detect any lesions. 
Um, same thing for the GI. Usually the first thing we'll see is we'll see feeding difficulties or we might see passing of stool not happen. So that's one of the biggest signs we look for as soon as babies are born. They have to pass what's called meconium, which is that early black tarry stool. You have to pass that within 24 hours. And if you don't have that stool come out, that means it could be a sign of sort of a blockage in the GI system, which is called atresia. And that's something that we look for, which can be seen in our children with Down syndrome. So those more severe type of things present early, and those are things that oftentimes will require surgical intervention, depending on the severity of it. When we talk about prematurity, Liam was born you know, at 30 weeks, so just the ease of knowing that medicine today is pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing because we have these things that we check as a routine for all babies that are premature and born at term. Um, we check these oxygen levels. We always listen and check the babies within 24 hours of birth. And especially with our children with Down syndrome, we always get an echocardiogram. We always get you know studies of the GI system because those are those early, more severe things that we would have to fix right away. So we will um, be watching very, very closely. We'll be watching that baby breathe, how they are feeding, because these are all signs that we look for right away. I was really scared knowing that Liam was going to be in the NICU, knowing that he was going to be early, and that's frightened me. And I remember being in the NICU maybe after a week. Looking back, it would have been easier if he hadn't spent 75 days in the NICU, but knowing that he was there being taken care of, and it was so intensive, and there were so many specialists there to see him and nurses there to guide us and answer our questions. I look back, and it was a valuable time of his early life that we were able to have uh, that really thorough checkout, you know, if you will. What do people need to know about having their child being born premature? And what do they need to ask? Asking all of the questions of what's going on with their baby specifically. So when a baby is born premature, the biggest things we worry about, depending on how premature, is how they're breathing and how they're going to be eating and growing, right? We call it feeding and growing basically are the biggest things. So depending on the level of prematurity is when we think about, you know, the lung function and the breathing, and then always, always your gut um, tied with your heart. So Every single day, constantly when you're in the NICUs, babies are monitored constantly. We're checking that heart rate, the blood pressures, we're checking everything. So you'll see a lot of tubes and things going on. Um, and that's what we're exactly watching out for. But I think the most important thing for families that are in the NICU if their babies are born prematurely is exactly that. Ask your care team of what's going on. Ask your nurses to always, always keep you informed and ask those questions so that everything can be explained to you because that is going to make that process so much easier and better. So what about thyroid? Congenital hypothyroid is, again, a risk of about 1% in babies that are born with Down syndrome, um, and that's something that we check right away. Thyroid, actually, here in our state and many of the states is part of the newborn screen, so that is something we automatically check for babies, and then depending on what the level looks like when it comes back, we will recheck at certain intervals, whether it's within a couple days and then a repeat check within a week can be typical sometimes that the thyroid, depending on if a child is sick when they're born, it can kind of fluctuate. It doesn't necessarily mean there's an issue with the thyroid. So it's something that we will check over and over. And if we do find that our child has some hypothyroidism, we use medication 
supplement pretty early. And we, and our children with Down syndrome do have a higher incidence of having hypothyroidism, which means that your thyroid gland isn't functioning as optimally as possible, but there's medication that we use to treat that. Um, you would typically be followed with an endocrinologist, which is a specialist of the hormones. And we draw blood and we'll kind of modulate that um, dose of the medication, depending on what the thyroid level should be. The thyroid is a hormone that's very, very important in just growth overall, um, impacts also your skin, your hair, impacts um, whether your stool kind of coming out of your body, whether you have constipation or not, um, and then also has an impact on a child's weight or an adult's weight. So that's not, those are all things that we monitor very closely, the blood level, but also how a child is growing, and we'll kind of move around that dose of the medication if they have hypothyroidism. Is there a certain age that that would start to show itself? Thyroid is one that can appear at any time, to be honest. I've had patients with Down syndrome who actually never had an issue with thyroid. So when we did our annual screens of the TSH, which is a thyroid stimulating hormone, it was always normal. Um, I've had many that have had low thyroid levels that we've had to supplement, whether they were at the young infant age or maybe later on around, you know, five, six years or even later in the teen years. And that's, again, why we monitor that growth. If I notice that my patient isn't growing as well or gaining maybe too much weight, having issues with constipation, for me, that's one of those tip ups like, okay, let me go and check this to make sure that it's still on par. And then if it you know, is low, then I would start the medication and refer to our endocrinology team to help me manage that. Is there anything additional that parents would need to know or need to ask? For the thyroid? Not necessarily. I think beyond being armed with that health supervision guideline and making sure that your healthcare team is checking that hormone um, is important. And that's one that we do check annually with every single visit. So in, in between, um, if you notice any of those signs, like you notice your child is gaining weight too fast, maybe they're having some constipation, maybe their skin is feeling dry. Those are things that you would think, okay, let me go back. And maybe if it's in between that annual visit, we might want to check a thyroid level. And growth as well, you're saying, and also uh, height. So growing tall is positive, but growing in weight would, would be a sign that it would be negative. Yeah. Usually a thyroid, and this is not just for my children with down syndrome, any child, one of the parameters I use to think, okay, maybe there's an issue with the thyroid is if I have a child gaining weight, but not growing taller. If I have a child that's getting taller and taller, I usually don't check the thyroid because that's not the issue. So that's what I'll, you know, really quickly show the families a growth curve and, and say, okay, hey, you know what, the, the height is leveling off. Let's go ahead and check that thyroid and see if that's not the issue. Liam's had some hearing issues, but it came out to be that his, uh, the tubes in his ears were small. So he had some, some liquid in his ears and he would have some ear infections. Like a lot of typical kids, he ended up getting tubes a, a couple of times. Um, what do you see in... In children with Down syndrome, we were talking about uh, different kind of hearing issues. Yep. So children with Down syndrome actually do see higher levels of otitis media, which is ear infection. And the reason is because of the way the face and the ear canals are formed, um, that there just has, tends to be a higher propensity of, of ear infections that happen. Also, the ear canals tend to be what we call stenatic, which means very, very small and thin. So it's hard for a clinician to even look in. So usually it's our ENT doctors that will refer and they're able to look in all the way. Um, and, and a lot of times we'll do PE tubes or those pneumonoscopy tubes to extract any fluid and have it 
fully draining out because if you have fluid sitting there, there's a higher risk for it to turn into an ear infection. And then also that can impact hearing. Um, it's a different kind of hearing loss that happens with children with Down syndrome. They're sensory neural and conductive, which means that there's blockages or there's another reason for that hearing loss. So that's why hearing screen is very, very important. Again, that we constantly check. With our children with Down syndrome, we actually do higher level types of hearing screens, not the ones that are just in the office, but I'll usually get one that's a sedated ABR, which is the type of a brainstem type of hearing screen. And just to make sure that again, um, that child has normal ear hearing. Um, just because we knew hearing and vision are one of the top things that we do see deficiencies in with our children with Down syndrome. So it's something that very much you wanna stay on top of. And also for me, very, very important is you need hearing to be able to speak right? You need to be able to have vision to be able to develop. So those are things that you want to screen often and frequently and make sure because then on this, you're also doing therapy at the same time. Imagine if a child has a hearing loss and then you were being frustrated that they're not engaging and participating in speech therapy, or you'll see a lot of tantruming, lack of communication. This could all be because maybe we didn't catch that there was actually a hearing impediment. So very, very important to screen hearing and vision constantly. I'm always thinking of Liam's ears. Uh, I think of the times where he's had some fluid in his canal, the ear canal, may have not ha had a uh, an infection, but it would be muffled, and we realized that. And and uh, I actually still, he's 11 now, uh, if when we do a tub bath and he submerges his head in the water, even then, I mean, especially when we're at the pool, but if he is in the, in the tub, I'll do a little swimmer's ear in his, in his ears just to make sure that it's not lingering, and, and it does affect speech. Oh, absolutely. Hearing is something so important, even in all children between the ages of one and two, if I have any that have speech delay, hearing is something automatic I check, just because again, it's so tied with speech development. Again, that's something that parents can really talk to their pediatrician about. Do you have specific questions that parents should ask? About Anything that? they should know? So I think really important is with any child, and then especially our children, our children with Down syndrome, very important early on that your pediatrician is doing um, developmental assessments. So we should be doing developmental assessments every single time that you're going in for your well child visit. So this is your, you know, two week, one month, two month, four month, six month, all of those different physicals that we do early on. And then we do dedicated large scale developmental assessments at nine month, 18 month, 24 month, 30 month. Those are the ones where we go through actually all of the five domains of development. So if you think about fine motor, gross motor, personal, social, language. Um, those are all questions that we specifically will ask and have parents fill out because that's really drilling in, okay, is your child developing you know, normally or is there something else that we need to look at? And at what point do we wanna start therapy? Because that's all tied in with early intervention, right? Is if you find that there's any kind of developmental decline or has child has not had development, then there's easy interactive things we can do or do we actually have to have dedicated therapy start early? And especially thinking about you know, a developing child's brain, it's so plastic up until the five years, you really wanna start this therapy early. Um, so that's why having these key developmental assessments and, and, and asking your healthcare provider to do those assessments is really, really important. And again, that's all part of the physicals. That's what we should all be doing. Vision as well is also important. What do you see in, in your practice with uh, Down syndrome and vision? 
So vision is something we'll just ask about vision because it's pretty hard to do vision screening in children less than three year olds for any child. So we'll ask, you know, early on at the two month age, I'll ask, is your child tracking, you know, looking at your face and moving their head 180 degrees? There's all these type of vision things we look at. Specifically, children with Down syndrome can have what's called dislocation of the lens, and you can have sort of um, decline in vision. So all of our children with Down syndrome, we actually have by the age of one referrals to the ophthalmologist to be able to do dedicated vision screenings, which they do with, you know, the drops and the machines and whatnot, to be able to look back to see does a child need corrective lenses early on or not. Um, and then again, I always tie that with those developmental assessment. If I have a family will tell me early on, you know what, my child's not looking at my face. Or we, with hearing, I enter the room or make a noise and my child doesn't move their head. Those are all really key things for me as a pediatrician. I say, oh gosh, you know what, before these normal times that I do these screens, I'm going to check that hearing and vision much earlier because it ties along with that development um, right there. Well, every year our ophthalmologists ask us, uh, have we seen Liam's eyes cross a bit? You know, and, and, and she's going to examine him, but she asks us our opinion as well. And we, so it gets us to kind of think about it now and then. Do you see more crossed eyes? That's called esotropia or exotropia. So whether an eye deviates inwards or outwards or eye crossing, those movements can be more common in children with Down syndrome as well and can lead to vision decline, or it could be a cosmetic issue like lazy eye, which you have to do to surgical correction. So that is something that always with children with Down syndrome, we always ask, you know, if there's any eye crossing, have you noticed any movements? And then during your physical exam, there's maneuvers that we do when we check the eyes to check if there's any kind of crossing. You have a child look far and you can actually see if you can make the eyes move or not. And that right there will be able to tell you. And that's all part of the physical exam that our healthcare provider should be doing. And, and again, I'm going to ask you if there's, is there anything that parents should be asking? As a pediatrician, I hope that when my parents come in, they will bring up if they've noticed anything at home. Right. So if parents have noticed eyes are crossing, they've noticed that they feel like their child's squinting or there's dry eyes or they feel like maybe the child's banging their head or having headaches. Um, these are all things that I would hope a family would tell me and that would alert me to think, OK, maybe there's something with the vision and I want to check if it wasn't the normal times that I would typically check that. So those are all things tied in. And again, with the development, those are things that we usually can try to draw out. Anything you find at home, those are all things that, that you just have to bring to your healthcare provider, right? And, and those are all really important. And whether it ends up being something or not, as a parent, that's really important to kind of bring up. Like you said, no question is not to be asked. Yeah, no, that's usually how I start my visits is, do you have any questions or concerns? I usually ask the child, depending on if they're after five, do you have any questions? And that's the funnest thing when they'll tell me about their belly that hurt a year ago or they swallowed gum. Um, and then you know, the parent will then come in with their questions. So that's really important is to write down these things or anything that you notice of your child. And you don't have to wait for your appointment or your physical time, you should be able to contact your pediatrician if you have something come up in between. So your pediatrician can answer that and put your mind to ease as well. You had mentioned ENT, ear, nose, and throat. It brings me to, to thinking of, of sleep because I, I think of uh, Liam sleeps pretty pretty well, but I think across the board in, in humans, we're, we're more conscious about sleep and and some things that can disrupt sleep. Do you find that as well? 
Yes, so sleep apnea is something that can be pretty common in our children with Down syndrome. So that's a question that usually starting at the age of two to three, I always ask during sleep, have you noticed that your child snores? Have you noticed that they have disruption in their, in their um, breathing pattern where they stop breathing and then they'll kind of catch up with that breath? That's what we call an apneic episode. And that will tell me that maybe the way that air is moving between their nose and mouth is not enough to oxygenate their brain. Um, the reason why this happens more common in children with Down syndrome is basically the way the nose is structured to their face, but also the tongue, we call it relative macroglossia, which means the tongue is disproportionately larger than the mouth size. So you can imagine if a child is sleeping and you have hypotonia, which is sort of the tone is relaxed, can get in the way and have some trouble with, with breathing during sleep. So really important is that we ask about sleep a lot between the ages of three to five years, specifically snoring challenges, choking episodes, not being able to sleep a full night where there's daytime sleepiness and kids are just falling asleep during the day and wanting to take a nap. And what we usually do is we order something called a sleep study, which, it, which is when a child goes to sleep, we check how that oxygen level is to the brain to see if there's anything we need to do that can help sleep. Is that something parents would take their children to, or is that a device maybe they bring home? It can be both. Depending on what the service is, it can, but it can be a device that can be done at home, or you can go to a sleep center. What are some remedies for sleep apnea? So depending on the type of sleep apnea, there's two different kinds. Um, there's obstructive and there's central. Central is basically there's a reason in the brain. There's a center in your brain stem that controls the way you breathe. If that's a central reason, there's not a lot you can do with that. But if it's an obstructive, it's the size of the tongue. If there's large tonsils, um, if there's adenoids in the nose that are large, that's kind of that obstructive basic blockage of being able to breathe. Or another big reason is obesity. Those are all things that we can fix, right? You know, looking at, you know, weight intervention, lifestyle redesign. If we have to do surgical intervention with removing the tonsils and the adenoids, there's tongue reduction surgery that we actually do if we find the tongue is, is large. I, one of my patients, she's now 19, has Down syndrome. Um, she is overweight and it's been a struggle for her to lose weight. And she's had now three tongue reduction surgeries because it got to the point with her sleep apnea that she can only sleep sitting up. Every time she would lay down, she would obstruct and not be able to sleep. She had her tonsils removed, had her adenoids removed. And now after the third time of her tongue, she now is sleeping through the night and sleeping on her back and doing well. So again, it's, it, it depends on how severe that obstruction is or not. This particular patient's obesity, is that something that was a thyroid issue or is you think it's a lifestyle? Oh, hers is lifestyle. I love my patient so much. She's nonverbal. She comes in every month and she just refuses to be able to engage in healthy choices. And it's hard. Um, she's the cutest, sweetest thing, but she refuses to stop eating macaroni and cheese, drinking soda constantly. And her mom, we've gotten to the point where I've told mom, you know, you, you're buying this stuff, stop buying it, right? Just have water and fresh fruits, but she will just not even eat then. So it's, it's been a challenge. And, it, and I find that lifestyle redesign is really hard in our older youth with intellectual disability, right? Because she wants what she wants. And I think some of it is, and, and this mom has told me it's guilt. 
she feels guilty because her child has Down syndrome. She wants to make her happy and give her whatever she wants. And we've had a lot of tough conversations, but this is not healthy. And I don't want to diagnose her with high blood pressure and diabetes and all the things that this can lead to. But I think it's challenging. We've now gotten to the point where mom and my patient are walking three blocks a day, which I think is an incredible win. Um, I have her coming in monthly for weight checks. And even if she's stable and doesn't gain weight, huge excitement. I hug her. I, we get so excited for that because it's a tremendous win. I don't ask for weight loss, but if we can even stabilize and then with time, slow baby steps, we can get there. But it's really hard. You know, there's a lot of factors that impact sort of lifestyle redesign and, and thinking about that. And I acknowledge it's tough to lose weight for anybody, let alone imagine the overall sort of guilt and expectation and then lack of understanding and resource. And there's just so complex. Mona, when you talk about it, that child is 19 years old. So when she was born 19 years ago, the attitude towards Down syndrome was probably different. What changes have you seen in that time of the attitude towards Down syndrome? In my world, I've seen a lot of acceptance and advocacy recently. What I see in my older age group, and, and this is the part that breaks my heart, I've seen a lot of family supports that have gone down. This one, I remember having the family come intact to my visits and at about 10, the father is no longer in the picture and she's a single mom taking care of this child. And I unfortunately see that a lot in all of my children with special health care needs and not, not all meaning all diagnoses. Caring for a child with special needs can be hard on a family support system. And I've seen breakdowns in you know families over time and the impacts that that has on the child is, is tough. And it's tough to then come in as a healthcare provider and think about all the medical stuff that I know and risks, but then how do you balance that with the very real social mental health environment that a family is facing? And how do we sort of collaborate and negotiate, if you will, on, on taking the steps towards a good outcome? And I, and I say that if I think right now about my 17 year old I saw two weeks ago, that's a single mother. This one's a single mother. I see my younger set are all intact right now. I don't know what the future will look like. I'm hoping there's more information out there. I'm hoping there's more support, but I think it's complex. I think you, I think you nailed it on the head when you said it's the guilt because you know, we can go from our experience, what we experienced in the, in Liam's diagnosis 10 years ago and what the picture was painted. You know, we had a NICU doctor whose only recommendation upon release was that to watch out that Liam would be fat and lazy. So I feel like when that gets carried and those limits are present, and then you do have the dynamics of a household, you do have the challenges of being a single mom that, and that guilt, it, it compacts it. It has such a, a great impact on that child's success as it would on any child's success. We, we've discussed that before where that could even extend to outside family and friends. I mean, I think of Liam. I've said this before in the podcast. Liam's gone to many birthday parties where he's definitely the first kid served a piece of cake after sometimes, sometimes attempted to be given cake prior to the birthday child. Uh, and it's a big piece. You know, it's a nice big piece of cake. And that's a, a way for people to, because they care for Liam. They, they feel for something maybe, maybe they don't know a lot about. And 
it's something that does happen in society, and I could totally see how that happens in the immediate family, but also extended family and friends. Absolutely. I see that theme with my patients with Down syndrome, with my survivors of cancer. I've seen a a sort of a roadmap where my children who are very, once very ill, who I was literally seeing on a weekly basis because I was trying to make them gain weight, whether it was, you know, post-cancer treatment or whatever it is, to now I'm managing obesity. And the crux of it, a lot of it, like you said, it's, it's sort of that survivor, I call it survivor guilt with that population because it's sort of like, oh gosh, we went through so much. Now that we have this child who's in remission or doing better, let's feed, 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 right? And it's immediate family, it's extended family, it's everywhere, it's school. I had to talk to a teacher and say, you cannot give this child four pieces of cake even she asks for it, no matter what, because we have to think about other consequences that can happen with this. But I, I get it. And it's not just our children who are sick, it's all of us. You know, if you don't feel good or you're sick, you mean food is the best cure a lot of times, right? Just sit with a gallon of ice cream, you know? Absolutely. So it's kind of how do you reframe and have these discussions, I think, early on and remind, but I think never judge, just try to support. Are there any other changes? You've seen the attitude of more advocacy coming up, but is there anything that you'd like to see changed? I would love to see with tied with the advocacy and i and i think this goes kind of back to our beginning conversation in kindness and exposure and building in collaboration and from youth bringing it in because of the experience we had you know sagel learning from liam i feel like every child in the world should learn from a child with down syndrome with any medical condition or anything anyone that's deemed quote unquote different right we're all different and having that awareness, because I think that that I would hope and pray that as my child grows, and if he becomes a leader, a decision maker, he would remember, and he would impart that change. I think that's incredibly important. I think we, us not making decisions based on large scale, what we think Down syndrome is, but individualizing care and, and treatment plans and educational needs specifically to that child, understanding that the diagnosis of Down syndrome, it isn't like you're reading a book. It's not every single child with Down syndrome has the same capacity, capability, just like other children, all children, right? And how do we individualize that care and truly listen to our patients and families? Involving other children and other anyone else to advocate and tell these stories. I think that's so important. I'm not a fan of cookie cutter type of planning. It's always has to be individualized. And I think if more people can do that, I think we'd just be in a better place. Well, it's funny. We're 11 years from the diagnosis day. And I I think I kind of held on and I didn't think about it until maybe today. Um, An underlining feeling of, especially when going to a school system, the burden part. And I hadn't thought about it until the very beginning of our conversation today that I may have held that where I'm, I'm thinking these people across the table think of my son, even if it's unconsciously, as a burden and not seeing him as the asset that he is and the asset that Sagel sees him as and you see him as and we obviously see him as a, as a great gift to the world. He's taught our family so much and, and as much as we teach him. And that's how uh, uh, the dynamic of humans are to each other. And I think now I can release that feeling if I'm conscious of what that 
vibe I was having sometimes. Uh, Our child is not a burden. Not a burden. He's an asset. And like like He's every a child. human. Let me ask you, the health concerns that we spoke about, are any of those prevalent only to individuals with Down syndrome? No. Those are all conditions that I look for in all of our children, you know, who are growing, thriving. I have many different children that may have hearing deficiencies, that have vision deficiencies. My own daughter had cross eyes, if you will, and had surgery when she was two and a half years old. Thyroid is something that I diagnose in many different children. Leukemia, you know, only children with Down syndrome don't get leukemia, right? So no, these are not medical conditions that we only see in children with Down syndrome. Now, some of them may have a higher propensity, but it's it's something that we screen, but I screen for it for all of my kids because I see these conditions, unfortunately, in many different types of children. That's what I want our listeners to hear is that when our children are born, we receive a laundry list of these possible diagnoses. And that laundry list when you're still pregnant can be used really to instill a lot of fear, a lot of fear into mothers, which can have such an impact on the remainder of the pregnancy, on how they feel when their child is born, and just set such an unkind foundation for that life, an unfair expectation of limitations. And I just want parents to hear that it's it's not something that is only found in Down syndrome. This is these are diagnoses that that anybody could have. Any child can have any of that list of conditions that you that are associated with children with Down syndrome. And the most important thing is you never know what your child is going to have. Like I said in my experience, I have many patients with Down syndrome don't have any cardiac defects, never had a GI defect, had some hearing loss, wears glasses, is in middle school, high school. Sure, we had to do a lot of speech therapy. We maybe had to do some ear tubes. Some had some hearing aids, but it's a spectrum. Now I have some that did have more severe disease, but children with Down syndrome, again, doesn't mean that they're going to have all of these different conditions. And, And I would argue that any baby born, you would hope that, you know, you don't have to diagnose anything. And unfortunately, I have patients that don't have Down syndrome that have many different complications, even more severe than the list that's associated with Down syndrome that I care for. And that's what our job is to do is to honestly love that child, give them the best outcome in life. And we will collaborate together and we will try to see what we can do. What I would like to have known then was these are things that there's a propensity to, but they're, they're not isolated. Is there anything that if you knew then as a doctor, whether it be at the very beginning or, or at any time that you wish you knew, is there something that you'd learned along the way about people with Down syndrome or your patients? So all the stuff that I learned in medical school is exactly that list of diagnoses that can go along with, with children with Down syndrome. I think what I've learned in my 17 years of practice, I have changed the way I talk to families about Down syndrome. And that's tied with sort of that medical knowledge of that list, but then also the experience that I have with patients and families. And now when I talk to mothers who have their prenatal visit with me and they said, okay, I'm going to have a baby with Down syndrome, I sit down. I talk about the health supervision guidelines that we're going to do. I talk about all the things 
that we're going to think about of all these different on screen, but we're going to be there together. And the most important thing is that we're there together and we need to create a loving support system for this child. Early on, we're going to look for those things, but it does not mean that your child is going to have all of those things on that list, all of those diagnoses. And even if they do, many of those are common things that we diagnose in other children as well, and we will get through this together. And that's something that I now talk about much more is I'm bringing in my experience, my real experience. And I also have families talk to each other and say, would you like to talk to my some of my families who has a teenager with Down syndrome, someone in middle school, someone who's school age, so you can hear about what that experience has been and see how that child is doing. Um, I didn't do that as much in the beginning because I just didn't know. And maybe some of the physicians that people see might kind of go on those list of diagnoses. But the beautiful thing that I've had is I've been able to care for so many families that I often say, I will never be able to predict what your child's life is going to be like because I've seen it all, right? I know the most important thing is the love and support that you're going to give your child. That's going to have the longevity outcomes. That's what it is. It's about the family support, collaborating with your healthcare team, and we're going to roll up our sleeves and do this together. They're not going to have all of those diagnoses. They may have some, they may not have others, but no one's going to predict that for you. And even if we have to diagnose it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Well, thank you, Mona, for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really important. And um, I certainly hope that um, we can advocate our communities together and, and work with our patients and families that have Down syndrome. Again, from my perspective, children with Down syndrome, all children, I mean, these are diagnoses and things that I see every single day in all of my family. So the more that we can educate each other and work together, the better that we will be in the end. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Mm-hmm.